We are going to uh, start a new sermon series this week at Mount Hope. We just came out of our global outreach time together, which was wonderful as usual. And uh, we're going to start a new sermon series that we're calling Digitally Remastered. And if you've been around Mount Hope over the last couple of years, then you know that when we are, when we are in our uh, November series, we usually talk about our relationships. We talk about things like our most important relationships, right? Marriage, parenting, being single, dating, all those kinds of things through this month. Well, this month we're going to talk about something a little bit different. We're going to talk about our relationship with something, your relationship with something, that affects all our other relationships. There's an old saying that says something like, we design our things and then our things design us. We design our things or we design things and then things design us. Us And I don't know that anything is more true, that, that statement is more true about anything other than technology. I mean, you think about how it happens, right? There's no way that the Wright brothers at, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, as they finally took a flight for a few seconds, could have ever anticipated how that design would radically transform the world and how it redesign all of us. And certainly the, th- the same thing is true about our technology, right? That we designed our technology, but our technology designs us. And it impacts our most important relationships, doesn't it? Your technology impacts your relationships with others, and it also impacts your relationship with God. I know it does. I don't know if I need to belabor this point. My guess is many of you are with me. That technology has so changed our interactions, so changed our relationships. I mean, I know how it works in my life, right? If one of my children, one of my three kids has a tablet in front of them, including our two-year-old daughter, uh, which, which we try to limit, right? But as long as they have one of those tablets in front of them or my son has his Nintendo Switch in, in front of him, I mean, I think sometimes that, that a bomb could go off in the backyard of our house and no one would move. No one would even, and, and good luck to me if, if I'm going to try to get their eyes off of that so that we can have somewhat of a conversation. But if I'm true, if I'm honest with you, if I'm honest with you, if I'm engaged in a work email, or if I'm engaged in, in texting with someone and my child walks up to me, can be equally hard, as hard for them to get my eyes off the screen as it is for me to get their eyes off the screen, right? I mean, it affects us both ways. And certainly my relationship with God, I can tell you there's been multiple times where I've said to myself, all right, I'll just do my devotions on my phone this morning. And so I start my passage reading, and I read two verses, and then the folks at ESPN feel like I need to know something, and so they, they notify me of something, and 15 minutes later, I've read two verses. Yeah. And it's changed my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And my guess is you experience this as well, right? You're running the Zoom meeting at work, and you can see people's eyes on the screen. Or some, We have teachers here. We've got a professor in the back. You can see your students' eyes on the screens, and you know they're doing anything but listening to what you're saying or participating in the work. And, and you can feel that, right? You know what it's like to talk to someone and just wish they'd look up from their phone long enough for you to be able to have a conversation with them. And in your relationship with God and how that works, I think we all know what it's like to be in a church service, to be in the small group, to be a little bored and say, pick up that phone and say, well, let me see what else is going on. And our technology certain impa- certainly impacts our relationships with one another and our relationship with God, and so we think it would be wise for us to take a few weeks here and talk about that. Now, I searched through the Bible. I did a quick search. The Bible does not mention computers. It does not mention the internet. It doesn't mention smartphones or any of those things. However, there are plenty of places in Scripture that we are given 
statements and warnings and principles of what it looks like to live the life that God calls us to live that I think are so important and so valuable to apply around this area of technology. And as we get into the overview this morning, as we, as we introduce this idea this morning, one of the ones that comes to mind that I think is really helpful to us as we think about how do we handle technology, how do we, how do we put this in the right place in our lives, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's one thing you won't hear us say over the next four weeks. We're not going to get up here and just rail against technology as evil. I don't think that technology in and of itself is evil. In fact, there's a lot of good things that happen through technology. Technology itself is actually very neutral. It just can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. It can draw us closer to one another and closer to God, or it can draw us further apart from one another and further apart from God. And so we're not up here these these four weeks to say technology is inherently evil, but we are here these four weeks to say God's word has principles that will help us make sure that we are in control of it rather than it being in control of us, and that rather than using it and leveraging it for poor purposes, we can use it to draw us closer to God and one another. And there's something that Paul says to the early church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, that I think is so helpful here, because he's talking about some things that in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong are not necessarily evil. And he makes this statement to the church. He says this, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. In fact, some of your translations may say something like this. All things are permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And if you look at that first phrase there in that, in that passage, you'll see some extra quotation marks, because what Paul is doing is he's actually quoting a slogan that people in the city of Corinth used. And we're not sure if it was in widespread use among all the people of the city, or if it was only in widespread use among the Christians. But nevertheless, Paul is using a phrase that with the people would be familiar with. All things are lawful for me, and here's what we know. The Christians in Corinth, the Christians in this early church, are using this phrase to justify ungodly behavior. They're saying, we're free in Christ. All things are lawful for us. All things are permissible for us. And they're using that phrase, which, yes, we have freedom in Christ, to justify behavior that was not in line with their relationship with Jesus, that was ungodly behavior. And so Paul's calling them back here. He's saying, yes, I get the principle on its surface. All things are lawful for you. All things are permissible. We have freedom in Christ, especially for the early Jewish people that had just become Christians. You get, your diet is changing. Some of the laws that you used to follow, you're not following anymore. I get it. There's freedom in this relationship. However, not all things are helpful. And I think what Paul is saying to the church, to the early church and to us, is that we ought to be aware that there are things in life that are okay. There are things in, in your life as a Christian that are okay that hold the potential to become not okay. There are things in your life that are okay, things that it's fine to do, but they hold the potential to become not okay. We know how this works, right? It's okay to work, and it's okay to work hard, but at some point it becomes not okay. And it's okay to rest, and it's okay to take time off. It's okay to sit on the couch for a while, but there becomes a point 
where you need to get off the couch. It's not okay anymore to do that. It's okay to shop online, but if every time you open up your door, the stack of boxes with the little smiley face and the arrow on the side are, are at your eye level, at some point it becomes not okay right, to, to shop online. If you're on a first-name basis with all the different delivery people, there's a point where it becomes not okay, right? It's okay to exercise, okay to watch your diet, but there's a point it becomes not okay. And so there's all these things in our world well, yeah, they're, they're good things. They're, it's, it's okay. But they have the potential to become not okay. And I think technology for us as followers of Jesus Christ fits right in that category. Because to be sure, it is helpful. But we ought to be wise and recognize that when we accept its help, we're also accepting the potential that if we don't keep it in check, it's going to become not okay. And we're going to talk about some of those specifics, some real specifics uh, in coming weeks. But there's this book that was released uh, last year that I, I think is super helpful called The TechWise Family. And it's by a gentleman named Andy Crouch. And I would really encourage you to take a look at that book and to read it. And in the book, uh, Andy Crouch takes some research that was done by the Barner Research Group. And he uses the research, he uses scripture to really help Christians understand the place that technology should be in our lives and in our family. And one of the studies that they do, that Barna did, is they asked this question to a, a little over 1,000 people. They said, in what ways has technology made your life genuinely easier? Or you could rephrase that, in what ways is technology helpful, right? And 67% of people said access to more information. I certainly enjoy that. And 54% say they're more connected. And so technology is certainly helpful. But only 13% said that it added any joy to their life. And then they asked the reverse question, in what ways has technology made your life more difficult? When has it crossed the line and become not okay? 42% of people said that they waste a lot more time, and 40% said they're a lot more distracted. I think those percentages are low in, in my experience. In what ways has technology made life more difficult? In what ways has it become not okay? waste a lot more time, and we are a lot more distracted. How true is that? And Paul's just saying to the Christians, there are things that you can do that are okay, but they have the potential to become not okay if left unchecked. And then the question becomes, how do we know if we've crossed the line? I mean, when have we crossed the line to it being a good thing that we can connect with people and that we have access to information, to crossing this line where it's stealing joy out of our lives, and to where it's wasting our time and becoming a distraction. And I think the second half of this verse that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 6.12 tells us exactly when we cross that line. This is what he said. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And then he says this. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And I think what Paul's saying there is what is okay stops being okay when it no longer needs your okay. What is okay stops being okay when it no longer needs your okay. When that thing takes over our lives to the point that it doesn't need our permission, it's just in charge all the time, it stops being okay. There was a time, I don't know, I'm, I'm about to, to blow some of your minds. If you're, if you're, I don't know, under 15 or something, you're not even going to believe what I'm about to say. I don't know, maybe under 20. There was a time where to access the internet, 
I had to re- we had to really give the internet permission to, to be on and be active in our homes. I don't know if anyone else remembers this, but when I would do research for a paper when I was in, when I was in high school, like maybe my freshman year of high school or something like that, a project at school, not only did I have to give the internet permission to turn on, but I was limited. I could only be on it for like 60 minutes a month or something crazy like that. I was very limited. We had this program called CompuServe. I don't know if anyone else remembers CompuServe. And I would go downstairs where our computer was, and I would click on CompuServe, and then I would click connect or OK or whatever the button said. And then, I don't know if anyone remembers this, there was this series of tones followed by static. Does anyone, if you've heard this, I guarantee you it's playing in your mind right now. I'm not going to, to do an impression for you, but you know this sound, right? You can hear it right now. And some of you younger people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I know. But there was this time, and not only would you have to hear these tones and listen to it connect, but it would shut the house phone down. Now, no one could talk on the phone, and I remember there being times where I would go on and I'd hit connect, and then someone upstairs in my house, maybe one of my sisters or my dad or someone, screaming into the basement, who's trying to get online? I'm talking to someone on the phone. I mean, can you, can you remember that world at all? You could not go on the internet if someone was already talking on the phone in the house. And it used to require a lot more permission to say, hey, I'm going to interact with you right now and allow you the chance to interact with me. Not so anymore, right? The internet has taken the place in our lives that, that we think of it the way that Christians should think about the Holy Spirit, right? We can't see it, but we're so glad that it's there. And if we ever lost it, we wouldn't know what to do. It's just there. There's no more permission It's always there all the time. We used to be in the dominant position. And now technology is in the dominant position. We used to be in control. And now technology is in the control. And it affects our relationship with one another. And it affects our relationship with God. And something really interesting has happened fairly recently in our culture. And that is there's this whole group of people who developed all the apps, who built the algorithms that are now speaking out and begging people to stop using them. In fact, there's a documentary on Netflix right now that's pretty popular called The Social Dilemma. And the whole documentary is people that developed the algorithms, people who came up with this technology now banding together and saying, you need to put limits on this in your life. We built this to be helpful. It got away from us. It's no longer helpful. Tristan Harris, who is one of the leaders of this movement, who he worked for Google for, for many years, he, said, he says, never before in our history has there been a moment where 50 developers in Silicon Valley can affect the daily patterns of 2 billion people. One developer can change how notification works on our phones and affect the sleep patterns of literally hundreds of millions of people. And you have to ask yourself, as a follower of Jesus Christ, who's really in control of your life? Who's really in charge? As I was thinking about this, and I was trying to determine, like, who's really in charge right now in my life? Is it God? Is it me? Is it the phone? Who's really in control here? I thought of three questions that I asked myself, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't love all my answers to these three questions, but I think there are three questions that could really help us stop and evaluate what Paul is saying here. 
that everything's lawful for me, but, I, but not everything's helpful, and everything's lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I'm not going to let something else take the position in my life that only God should take, Paul's saying. And the three questions that I came up with just to figure out kind of who is in control are these. I asked this question, uh, how do I, what starts my day? What starts my day? What interrupts my day? And what makes my day? What starts my day, what interrupts my day, and what makes my day? And I'd ask you to ask the same question. What starts your day, what interrupts your day, and what makes your day? Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, shouldn't God be the answer to all three of those things? Shouldn't the Holy Spirit be the answer to those things? That what starts my day is my time with him. What interrupts my day, what has permission to stop everything, is his spirit and his voice in my life. And you know what makes my day? is the time I spend in his presence, the conversation I had with that neighbor or coworker about him or, or whatever it may look like. But instead, what starts my day? Well, I got to check and see if anything important happened overnight while I was sleeping on my phone. And what interrupts my day? I mean, any number of notifications for any number of things. And what makes my day? Well, for many of us, what makes our day is when we get the like or we get the comment or we get the person that texts us back. That's really what makes our day. And at some point, we're crossing the line, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. We're crossing the line where it goes from being something that's helpful and beneficial to something that is in control. January 17th, 1994, there was an earthquake in the city of Los Angeles, 6.4 on the Richter scale, it was a pretty significant earthquake there in the city, and it knocked out power to most of Los Angeles, but all of North Los Angeles. About two million people in the city lost power. In fact, the earthquake was so strong, it was, it was felt hundreds of miles away. It knocked out power as far as Wyoming. And if you're a, you're a New Englander your whole life, I'll, I'll explain the U- U.S. map to you. Uh, California and Wyoming are a long ways apart, all right? And so it knocked out power. I know you don't like that comment. It knocked out power all the way to Wyoming. And what happened is, is two million people walked out of their homes onto the streets in the pitch black of night. And they started to look up in the sky, and some people began to notice a silvery cloud forming over the city. And they began to get nervous. What was it? Was it gas or something from the earthquake that was now forming in the sky? What what was that? Was it an alien invasion? People didn't know. And so they actually began to call emergency call centers. And some people called the Griffith Observatory, which sits outside of the city of Los Angeles. And they, and they, they said, you know, there's this silvery cloud that's forming above the city after the earthquake. And the 911 operators and the, and the folks at the Griffith Observatory told them all the exact same thing. It's, there's no reason to be alarmed. It's no trouble. It's just the Milky Way. People that had lived in the city their whole lives had been so blinded by the artificial light and the city of lights that when the lights were gone, they could now see the beauty of the galaxy for what it really is. And I just wonder, for many of us in our lives, myself included, Jesus calls himself the light of the world how much that light is dimmed in our life by the light of our screens. 
how much the notifications, how much the interruptions, how much the, the time that is spent on our devices dims the impact of God's voice and his presence and his beauty in our lives. It reminds me of a time that Jesus was at his friend's house. Do you remember this story in Luke chapter 10? If you're familiar with, with the life of Jesus, you might know this one. Mary and Martha are sisters. They have a brother, Lazarus, who you may know as well from some other stories. And Jesus stops by town, and no one knew he was coming. You know, he didn't post it on his blog or anything. He just showed up. And so when Jesus showed up, he came to the house of Mary and Martha, and they welcomed him in. But that meant some other people came in too. Uh, there's disciples. There's people that are following. So it wasn't just one person. It was a group of people. And all of a sudden, Martha's head starts spinning. She, she says, well, we've we got to get plates out. We've got to get food out. We need centerpieces, you know, depending on what a time of year it was. We need decorations or whatever it was that Martha was worried about. And she's going crazy in the kitchen trying to get everything together. And she takes a look out of the window of her kitchen that overlooked their living room or however their house was set up, and she noticed her sister Mary. And while she's all stressed out and all bothered by all these people who came into her house, and she didn't know, she didn't really, really get the, like, they didn't ask if it was okay, they just all came in, and she said okay, and now they're all sitting there. While she's getting ready for all these people, her sister is doing nothing. And I don't know, this probably, you're probably different with your siblings, but for Martha, this drove her crazy. That here she is doing all the work and her lazy sister is just sitting there listening to Jesus while all these people need to eat. So Martha finally says to Jesus, she can't keep her mouth shut any longer, Jesus, would you please tell my sister to get up off the ground and to help me out here? You see everything I'm doing. I'm getting all the food together. Can you tell her to help me? And what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 10, verse 24? He says this. He says, Martha... Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her and I can't help but wonder how many of us are in the exact same position as Martha because of our technology, that you and I are worried and anxious about many things, and what it is stealing away from us is our opportunity to go and to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to his voice. All throughout Scripture, if people wanted to hear the voice of God, they had to get into a place where other things couldn't distract them. We could go through throughout the stories, but Moses was away in the wilderness, and Elijah was in the cave when, Jesus, when God came and spoke to him in a whisper, and Jesus himself, when he needed to hear from his father, went away and found lonely, quiet places, the gospel tells us. If Jesus needed to get away from people and find quiet, lonely spots to hear his father's voice, how much more do you and I need to find quiet spaces in our lives if we're to hear from him. You know, what's okay for us to do as followers of Jesus, it becomes not okay when it no longer needs our okay. 
And I know for me, as I think about this and, and, and prayerfully plan through some of these sermons, I felt the Holy Spirit multiple times in my life. This is the place in your life where technology doesn't need your permission. This is the place where it's too invasive in your life. This is the place where I can't get a hold of you because you're more concerned with what's on your phone or what's on a screen than you are with what's in my word. And this morning, I bet a lot of us find ourselves in that same situation. If God needed to tell you something, if God wanted to say something to you, could he or are you too distracted and anxious about many things? There's this ancient custom, ancient discipline in the life of people who follow God, in the life of Christians, that allows us to put things that can dominate our lives back in their proper place. It's called fasting. And fasting is our opportunity to take those things that can find, become a dominant thing in our life, withhold ourselves from those things so that we can replace that time and space with intentional time in God's presence. So you might hear someone fasting a meal. Someone would fast breakfast or someone would fast lunch or maybe someone would fast an entire day. The whole idea is to say, my life is dominated by the need for food and the need for eating. That's something that I have to participate in. That's something that I have to do. But just to remind myself that there's nothing more important in my life than my relationship with God, I'm going to withhold that for this moment so that I can replace the time I would normally spend eating and thinking about food with time with Jesus Christ, with time with God. And I'm asking you, today, if you would consider with us over the next three weeks to participate in a technology fast. What if, what if we did this as a church? What if at home, what if in person, we did this together as a church? What, would, what might God want to say to us as individuals? What might God might want to say to you and your family? What might God want to say to us as his church, especially in a time like we're living in right now? And some of us, we're so consumed and we're so anxious about many things with everything that's going on in our world. And who wouldn't be if we're reading different headlines every five seconds? But we're so anxious and consumed that we can't be Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus saying, what is it that you want to say to us? So what if we turned it off and spent time in his presence? We're not asking you to shut it all down for three weeks. I don't think that's possible. But here's what we are saying. Would you, over the course of the next three weeks, find 15, 20, 30 minutes in your day, some place in your day where you are going to turn it all off. I mean off, off. Not silent. Silence is not off. Face down is not off. Off, off. Turn it off for 15, 20, 30 minutes a day and instead spend uninterrupted undistracted time here and listening to God's voice. What might God do? What might he say if we did that together as his followers? 
What, stops, what is okay stops being okay when it no longer needs your okay. And I'm going to invite our worship team back up as we prepare to close tonight, or this morning. And for many of us, technology is in that place in our lives. It no longer needs our okay. It just dominates. And you and I need to be remastered. We need God to come back and take that spot in our lives. That what we've designed has stolen from us. So would you join us over these next few weeks? turn off the voices of this world and to focus on God's voice and what he might have to say. Let's pray with one another. God, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. And God, we thank you for the gifts that you've given us. The ability to create, the ability to invent, the many ways that technology has connected us and spread the gospel. God, we're grateful for those things. But Lord, we admit to you today that it is stealing and do the work that only you can do. We give you all the